Welcome to another fine edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. With me all the way across the pond, I think he's across the pond, uh, he is the gold standard in ghost hunting and a right good old chap, Mr. Stephen Parsons. Good evening, Ron. How are you? Outstanding. Excellent. I believe you've been writing today. I have been. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. But more importantly is last Saturday I was doing uh, haunted tours at the lighthouse. Yeah, more importantly, I have a bone to pick with you. Yeah, whatever. Anyways. um, No, no, no. We'll deal with the bone I have to pick with you first because uh, I... I, yeah, we will, because I've noticed a haunted cruise. I have haunted cruise. We're about to lose uh, Steve Parsons from <laughs> You've got a haunted cruise coming up in August. Absolutely. And a ghost investigation of one of my favorite locations in New England, the Mance at Concord. Oh, well. And you're doing them before I get there. Yeah, absolutely. I want to have fun. You see? I don't want to do this, this stuff, English, English stuff. I want to have fun. Yeah. Well, we're going to be doing it with brown best muskets and red jackets when I come over. Yeah, we'll see about that. That's not, rebels. not been confirmed. <laughs> Anyways, last uh, Saturday I was doing a tour yeah. at the Lighthouse, and I got the whole group in the uh, observation, observation room there. There's only one door in and out, and I was addressing them in the observation room, of course, as Winslow's wall to wall to wall to wall and I looked outside and I saw a woman go from one end of the wall to the other and I stopped right in the middle and then I thought a second and then wait a minute we're all here and uh, yep that's it there was no one out there so I specifically saw a woman travel the entire length of the building uh, on a narrow pathway which there is no escape from and uh, she wasn't there so there you go well, I'm going to say that's pretty cool because it's remarkably like what happened to Anne and I at a Welsh castle once. When we really? saw some, we were at the bottom of a flight of stairs, and uh, the only flight of stairs to the level above us, and we saw a person walk across the floor above us, only from the knees to the mid body, because obviously we were looking through the aperture of a stairwell. Um, and we heard them as well. We went up, and unless they jumped out of a third-floor window, um, there was nobody there. Hmm. That's so, interesting. Uh, you see, this is it. This is it happens when we're not expecting it. 
Exactly. That was the whole thing. I mean, I just thought it was somebody who was out there, and I stopped to wait to allow them to get in and realized that we were all here. So, I mean, I know I wasn't looking for anything. And, and, sure. and the interesting thing about it, too, it's on a Coast Guard station. It's on an active Coast Guard station. And uh, the Coast Guard, uh, there are reports that they have seen people, as a woman specifically, walking on the walls at night. But when they go to either look in under binoculars or uh, go physically there, she's not there. And uh, it only shows up in the IR monitors. I would be very tempted to uh, spend some effort getting a CCTV camera installed onto that. Interesting, isn't it? We can't because it's an active Coast Guard base because of 9-11. Yeah, but we can't do that. Well, maybe they could. Maybe they could be persuaded to relocate some, one of their systems or the operate it on that is No. Okay. Fair enough. But as I say, I mean, I remember one very famous British investigator who had spent 35 years uh, looking for ghosts and had never had an experience, never had a sighting. Mm-hmm. And one night he was in a British pub and he'd sat there all night and, you know, like the last 35 years of his ghost hunting, nothing had happened until he saw the assistant barman, the assistant bar manager, he thought, who was supervising them that night, walk into uh, the back room behind the bar and he went in to talk to him. It was a one-way-in, one-way-out room, closed room, and there was nobody there. Was and he, he'd seen his first ghost and he never even realised it. Ha! Interesting. I mean, that is not my first ghost, so I can't say anything. I, no, but, but that's how it I, I saw I mean, one in the daytime when I was setting up for an event, and I thought yeah. someone was sneaking in, and no, there was yeah. no one there. A woman again, too, by the way. Yeah, so that's how it, it seems to be um, when you're least expecting it. In fact, we've had cases at, uh, in the past where we had so many incidents happen whilst we were setting up. We used to send in like a, an advanced party to set up very, very quickly some rudimentary uh, recording equipment before yeah. the main group came in uh, because it was happening that, that often. I, I told you my favorite EVP of all times is when we were setting up uh, at the spa one time and we got an EVP and it says to this day, I love it, although it is not a class A, I will submit that. It says it's the Ghostbusters. Cool. Isn't cool. Well, it's obviously a very recent ghost then if it knows what the Ghostbusters are. Uh, who says they're not cognizant of time or error? We we don't know that. Well, yeah, I mean, there is the famous most haunted in a 500-year-old castle talking to a German ghost in English. There you go. And, of course, it didn't But, you know, you know, if you look into the realm, you know, I mean, the, the psychics always tell you that. Mediums, excuse me, mediums always tell you that, you know, they'll get that question posed to them many times that, uh, you know, how can you speak to a German ghost? And, and they'll say, well, it's telepathy and everything else. And then uh, it was interesting. Uh, two Sundays ago, I was in church. And, of course, there's the famous uh, parable, not parable, actually, a report in the Bible from Apostles, one uh, that uh, Christ was speaking, and there were different people from all different countries, yet they all heard him in their own tongue. So maybe that's not an unusual occurrence for spirit. We have no clue. No, it's like Doctor Who, isn't it? The Universal Translator. Don't know. Don't they know. also have one in, in Star Trek as well, don't they? Absolutely. And the chips there that you they go, have you in, see. in other ones. We have no clue. Yeah. And we anyway. have a guest tonight as well. Yeah, and he, maybe he has a clue, and maybe he has his well, own it, ghost stories. Maybe well, he, he can has, understand. Maybe well, he has even seen a ghost. Well, the other thing as well, of course, is he is yet a, yet a different nationality and can understand what we're saying. So that's three different nations all speaking the same rubbish. Really? Awesome. So why don't you introduce him? 
Yes, it's my it's my proud honour to introduce uh, a gentleman who we've had on the show before, but he's 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 written the book that I always wanted somebody to write because I go over to Ireland quite a bit, and directly opposite our Welsh west coast is the Irish southeast coast. And uh, every time I've been over in the past, I've scoured the bookshops looking for the ghost gazetteers uh, to tell me more about the ghosts of Wexford. And uh, somebody finally wrote Haunted Wexford. And better yet, from my point of view, um, I was given the, the, the real honour of writing the foreword to the book. And I'm going over to help Michael Benson, our guest tonight, launch the book this coming weekend. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Michael back to the show. Thank you very much for having me back, Steve, and Ron as well. Uh, that's quite an introduction, and uh, now I'm going to, have to live up to that for the next 50 minutes. <laughs> and then I'm going to persuade you to write Haunted Waterford, because every time I go to Waterford, I can't find a book there either. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let me bask first in the pleasure of this one being finished, I think. <laughs> Come up for air, and we'll see what happens from there. Then. Well, you, you know, I'm going to have to ask Stephen when he goes over this weekend is to pick me up a boat, book and have it sign it. So when he comes over here in September, I'll have a copy myself. I'll certainly do that, Rob. Yeah. So that was, that, I was going to say that would be my pleasure, but do you really want your book defaced in that manner? <laughs> oh, absolutely. If you've seen my writing, you know that you'll be Picasso compared to it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's – why did Rob, the, Ron's why books did, are signed in crayon. Yeah, you pretty much. Uh, you know, smudges, you know. Uh, he's, not anyway. allowed to have it. he's not allowed to write with anything sharp. They don't give me anything sharp, right, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, why haunted Wetsford? Why? I mean, first of all, I don't where the hell is Wetsford? Uh, and, and why? <laughs> well, Wexford is on the very southeast tip of Ireland. And, and as we're, we're chatting here this evening, I'm looking out through the window and the sky is blue and there isn't a cloud and the green is green. And it's like Ireland should look. But why haunted Wexford? I, I think, you know, it's always important to write about what you know. And being from Wexford, having been born and grown up and still an indigenous species of this county, it, it just made sense. You know, it's, it's it, the places we've been, the experiences we've had, uh, and some of what other people have shared from their experiences as well. So it's a catalogue, if you like, to some extent, of, of a, a collection of, of experiences that all seem to point in, in one direction or another with regard to okay. the locations included in the book. If that makes sense. I'm not sure it does. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me. Okay. Uh, have you written a book before? No, this is a first-time exercise, and it was one of those bucket list things where, you know, everyone says they have a book in them, and I was in forever suggesting I'd write something. I had no idea on what this subject became the what. Uh, and for me now, it's it's a project completed, and it sits on my shelf uh, and I can, you know, take pleasure, I suppose, in the fact that I've seen it through to the end. And if people pick it up and read it and, by extension, enjoy it, well, that's just a bonus, really. Mm-hmm. And, and, Michael, do you, you have a ghost team, right? That's right, yeah. Wexford Paranormal is the name of the Yes, group. And, and, and you have a T-shirt that says Wexford Paranormal? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Listen, let, let's, let's not mince words. I have several. <laughs> okay, so you have a T-shirt that says Wexford Paranormal. And you have written a book, and now you run a blog talk radio. Do you have your own blog talk radio show? No. No, no. no. Okay. All right. I'm not that established yet. Okay. In, so it, you're it, almost, a, def- almost a full-bledged ghost hunter. That's very good. Okay. Well, in my defense, the T-shirts also say in the back, if found, please return to, and there's an address and a phone number there. <laughs> 
Rob, no, that's I clever. Have, I like that. At, at this point, as, as I only have a team, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. but don't have a T-shirt. And ah, you do have a T-shirt. I happen to see a T-shirt on you last time you were here. Uh, there isn't a team T-shirt. There is a single T-shirt in the ah. entire universe that has a Parascience logo on it. And the reason for that is it was a freebie when I had some business cards made. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but that's we, that's that, is the, oh, that is the only T-shirt. And I haven't written a book yet. Um, so what does that make me? Not a fully-fledged ghost. No, no. You're only a ghost standard, so that don't count. Uh, okay. You're not like a real ghost hunter. You're just like one of those academics. Oh, well, I don't know whether that – actually, I, I consider that to be a compliment. Uh, you really have to think about that before you answer I that, with, whether did. it's a compliment or not. Because I, I, I know from, other academics too. Well, I know other academics, so – Okay, yeah, so I, you have yeah. to think about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, well, let's talk about Michael. Books. Books. <laughs> let's talk about Michael. You started it. <laughs> Anyways, my, Michael, I mean, you have to, I, you heard the story about me seeing a ghost last Sunday mm-hmm. or, or something. Yep. Like, you know, I definitely yep. see, saw something. And, and Steve, definitely the same way. I mean, have you? Yes, I, I had this conversation with someone yesterday. I believe I have. Um, mm-hmm. it, on more than one occasion, really. The first one I can recall was as far back as when I was 12, um, when I happened to be outside the back of my house and this is actually in the book uh, and I was getting called and I heard my name called so I went inside and asked what did you call me for and my mother said I didn't call you so I went back out and the second time my name was called I walked out through the side entrance to the house looked over the wall next door thinking it was some of my friends having a, a laugh at my expense again I found nobody so I went back and the third time my name was called I uh, looked around to discover that in the gateway that I had left open, I could see an old woman. But despite seeing this old woman, I could also tr- see through her. So she was semi-transparent, but I could see details of the uh, environment behind her as well. And that's really what made it stand out as something out of convention uh, with the norm, as we understand it. You know, But you raised an, an interesting point earlier that you know people had seen a ghost uh, without realizing it. And, and I think that's because we we view the world through through filters. Who's to say that when we walk down the main street that everybody we see, quote-unquote, is um, as dense and physical and alive as we understand ourselves to be, other than we accept that that's the case? Hmm, that's now, true. I'm just, How do we just know the Dutch time travelers, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> or, or time slips from another dimension. Or, or uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, Michael's raised an interesting point that we've, we, you know, we've, we've touched Maybe on Maybe I'm dead. Maybe you don't exist. I don't know. I'm confused now. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I go around to, in, in, over here in the UK, we have, uh-huh. um, you know, quite a few historic cities where people in costume, Romans uh-huh. and, and medieval period costume, walk around all day and nobody really looks at them because we just accept that they're there. And uh, it's often occurred to me, and I, I've spoken to Anne about it and we've, we've talked about it, I think, on the radio show, that unless that person does something extraordinary, they might be wearing a hoodie, they might be wearing medieval costume, but we, do, we don't look at the people that were walking past in the streets. So unless... The figure does something extraordinary, like passes through a wall or disappears before us. We don't know if we're looking at the ghost. Well, you no. know, I mean, if you look at Ghostbuster, the movie, the absolutely, you know, holy grail of ghost hunting, uh, and they're in the hotel and they come up with their little cyclomantium meter there or whatever it is, and, uh, you know, it always goes down to 
poking them. That's what you got to do. Poking them. No matter vapor. what you do. Yeah. A full yeah. vapor apparition. Poke them with a stick and you know for sure they're real or not. That's that's my thing. I always carry a stick in my toolkit for a ghost hunting. So. <laughs> I, th- I always wondered what that was for. Yep, yep. So anyways, back to Michael. <laughs> you know, in the book, when we talk about seeing and, and, and I suppose, assumptions that we make, I, I've um, mentioned in the end of it that, you know, we, we should really should question everything, not from the point of view necessarily of being a doubting Thomas, but just to challenge um, or just to take our, our perspectives to a point where there's substance to our quote unquote beliefs, because I, I would make the, the argument that belief on its own is not the sound basis for the existence of anything, you know, that there needs to be something beyond that. If belief is a starting point that you explore and evaluate as you move forward, then fine. But, uh, you know, I think what we see and what we are looking at can be two different things because seeing is a process whereby we apply uh, social conditioned filters to allow us to interpret what we see to understand it. But the component parts that we're looking at that bring about what we are interpreting as what we see can be different things. That makes sense. I, I think. That's what I think anyway. You know, and I think that leads us down the, the road of discussing the whole concept of pareidolia as an example of that. But, you know, seeing is a process of interpretation to some extent. Oh, it is. Absolutely. You know, not some extent. It's total extent because we really don't see anyways. We only... Uh, get data which our brain interprets. And by the way, I yeah. found Wex, Wexford. It's near, uh, not does it look too far from Valley Hack? Valley Hack, yeah. It's about 25 miles. Ah, very good, very good. Okay. And close to Rose Burkhorn? Ross Birkin. <laughs> yeah, that's your Ross, yeah. Yeah, okay. I found it. I know where we are now. Okay. Yes. And in fact, if you're in that area, you're not too far from. Um, Duncannon Fort, which is a 15th century star fortification that is also mentioned in the book. Plug, plug. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, is where I'm going, which is where I'm going for my holidays the week after next. Excellent. Yes, and our so paths won't cross. So what's in this uh, haunted Wexford book there? Okay, well, the book essentially is a collection of locations, well-known historical locations, such as Duncannon Fort, Enniscorthy Castle, Loftus Hall, to mention three. It also has uh, a number of private cases that, that both myself and the team would have been involved in, uh, where in some instances in the book we have permission to release the location and the actual family name, and then there's a number of them that we um, substitute the real names for fictitious ones just to preserve the anonymity of the, the people involved but the stories are no more or no less accurate than they would be if the names are correct anyway so it's a collection of that there's some Victorian stories of, of White Haunted Wexford the uh, the stories that have stood the test of time and would have been lost really now only for the um, the um, consideration and efforts of individuals who keep them alive through walking tours locally and that type of thing. So it's a, a nice little whistle stop. It isn't too heavy, but there's something in it, I think, for everyone. And regardless of your perspective on the subject matter, if, if people pick it up and find it to be an enjoyable read in and of itself, well, I, I feel my job has been done then. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually quite important when you're trying to communicate with, with the reader because, you know, I, I've got a shelf full of books. Many of them are academic and relate to the subject of the paranormal, <laughs> but but they are impenetrable. You know, you, you pick mm. them up and a lay reader, I, th- I don't think would get past, and I'm not denigrating anybody, but it's just the language that the academics use. Um, when they're trying to deal with the subject. You know, they talk about constructs. They talk about you know, different aspects of psychology. Um, 
and yeah. they're not communicating the message. And I've said this to the to psych- parapsychologists at the SPR that they need to be communicating using plain language that, that people can understand in order to get the message across. And Michael does that eminently well within the book. And it was one of the reasons why I was, I was so pleased to be able to, when, when he asked me to write the foreword, because it's a book that's immediately accessible. Somebody, you know, just interested walking, you know, walking to a bookstore can pick it up and get useful information. And yet somebody who's got a deeper interest in the subject matter can gain an insight into the investigative process, the questioning processes, without having to wade through a morass of, of academic mumbo-jumbo. And so it hits, it hits at, you know, at multiple levels. I think Michael's doing himself a disservice at the moment. Um, it is a very eminently readable book, and it contains a lot of useful information. Mm. Yeah, what languages is it written in? Swahili. <laughs> Swahili. Yeah, I doubt it. Which is the, the it's the native language of the southeast isle of Ireland. I don't doubt yeah. it. <laughs> Sometimes it can sound like that. I will admit that, but um, you know, yeah, no, it's it, it's in the the universally accessible English language. Well, say that in Go- say that in Galway. But but that's not exactly true. I mean, uh, you know, the the Brits speak in some kind of strange language that we can't understand over here half the time. Well, it's called it's called English. Well, the reason it's, it's called it, English, we like to call it Old English. Is you because know, you uh, speak it wrong. We like to call it old English, so that yeah. we, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's anyway. aluminium, whatever. And and so, I mean, I, I mean, are you Irish, um, Lieutenant Michael? Michael, are you? I'm Irish? A, I, I, I am Irish. Yep. So, I mean, do you have words in, in Irish or Gaelic or whatever the hell they call it um, that's that's different than the British? Oh, the Irish language is is completely different. Start to finish than, than English, you know. Aha. Uh-huh. So well, that's no different than the Welsh because the Welsh uh, have a, na- a native language also, which is actually very similar to Irish, isn't it, Michael? You know, I think the Welsh yeah. are regression. I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I don't know what's happening, but uh, I don't know. I think they're regressing. I don't. They're just trying to step back in time or something. Uh, do you know, I kind of agree with you because we, we have uh, a Welsh assembly who's enforcing the use of the Welsh language. But we See, there you go. 8% of the, of the population in Wales are actually you know, native Welsh speakers. Uh, and yet we have all of our literature, uh, road signage is all dual language. Including I mean, my pa- or annoying me, my, my passport and driving license. Right. I mean, isn't that the goal of, of the world is to speak one language so we are one rather than many? I mean, you know, it'll be French, but what the hell? No, it won't be French. We sort of <laughs> after, we, we, we dealt with the French in the 19th century. Whatever. So anyways, back to Michael. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, I mean, how many stories are in this book or, or uh, investigations? Or right. Well, there are 12 chapters in the book. Uh-huh. Um so we're talking about 11 in total of, well, 10 investigative stories and locations okay. and two um, incidental personal accounts that, that kind of represent, I guess, where I come from in terms of what has led me down the road of exploration to, to understand and come to uh, a greater knowledge with regard to the experiences I've had. Uh, and really, to be fair, that's why I explore these experiences for other people, because I think it affords me the advantage, the opportunity, first of all, to maybe get clearer answers to my own experiences but in a way that removes me emotionally from the experience itself so I become the passive 
awestruck objective observer rather than the the, the person at the center of it who's emotionally entangled in what's going on. Okay. And I think that's a, a key factor, I think. And actually, it should be a key factor for most investigators. Uh, don't you agree, Stephen? I wholeheartedly agree. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because we, we have to remain absolutely on the fence and completely detached. It's, it is difficult when you're dealing in some cases, though, to... to uh, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we're humans, we have beliefs, we have our own ideas, uh-huh. but you have to, as, a, as an investigator, put those aside um, and, and, you know, try and steer a middle ground, try and stay on the fence. I remember there was a famous uh, researcher in the 19th century, early 20th century, a French Charles Richet, uh, who said that he annoys the believers and the skeptics equally, which um, is a good a good position to be in. True, very true. So, go ahead, Michael. I was going to say I think that certainly is is the path we should seek to follow. It's an aspiration. I think from from the human frailty element of it, I think we might step either left or right of that line at any given time. But at least if the intention is there, we won't step too far to either side of it. Um, and I think that's important. And equally important, I find, is that once we've been through a process of exploration and investigation for a client, that we present them with what we find. So really the model simplified for me is here's where we went, here's what we did, here's what we found, and here's what we would glean from that. But if something for me at the end of all that exploration is significantly unexplainable, there's still a number of factors to be considered. A, it doesn't mean it, it can't be explained. It just means that for me, it's significantly unexplainable. And B, if by virtue of me seeing it as such, I suggest that it's therefore paranormal, I'm projecting a personal narrative that po- at that point, and I've kind of come full circle. So I really need to be able to leave it at a point of saying it is currently significantly unexplainable and to leave a space for the client or the, the, um, the individual in question to then derive their own perspective on it based on what they've been presented with. I don't think you can categorically place a meaning on it that excludes all other individuals' rights to interpret at that point. Now, maybe that's just a bit deep, but um, that, that would be my view on the, the, the investigative process, certainly with private cases. What, what, what do you, uh, what's your position when you, you've, you've done your investigation, you've presented your opinion um, and your conclusions, and then the client sort of willfully goes away and claims it's paranormal based on the fact that they know what they've seen and they know what they've heard. Is there a degree of frustration um, endemic there? Or is it uh, a quiet shaking of the head and leaving them happily to get on with it? Yeah, once I've fulfilled my role to the best of my capabilities, um, whether or not I agree with the... I mean, oh, I'll tell you what, look, at very often sometimes people will get in touch and only want you and realistically only want you to tell them what they want to hear. That, mm-hmm. of, of that, there's no question, you know, but you, you learn to recognize that. And it's their right to interpret um, the way they see fit. And if at the end of a process of exploration they choose to do that, as long as they do it based on their own perspective and don't misrepresent what we've been and what we were about mm-hmm. to substantiate that, well, then after that, it's their prerogative and, you know, the best of luck to them, really. Cheers. But not, yeah. Cheers. But, but yeah. also frustrating. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that conversation might be had behind hands with, with trusted yeah. individuals. <laughs> yeah. But I've just wasted three months of my life telling you what you didn't to do a job, and we do our job, and, and it's up to the client or whoever to accept what we've given them. So, anyways, it's time for a break. 
You're listening to Ghost Chronicles Internationals on Tojanet. We'll be right back and follow messages. Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be with remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased. We'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place and oasis in this hectic world. International with the gold standard of ghost hunting in New England. That's Ron Kolek, of course. And me, Old England's very own Van Helsing. <laughs> 
and our special guest tonight is Michael Benson, author of Haunted Wexford. And before we go to Michael, I'm just talking because Ron normally interrupts me at this point, to say that the following broadcast that you're listening to, if you're listening to it now and you've missed it, then you can listen to it on iTunes, the podcast, uh, and other stuff. So, that, that do you, Ron? Are you going to butt in? With an announcement? No, you're fine. Oh, okay. Okay. Michael, we were talking before the break. Now, um, one of the questions I've got for you is, is one that's come up fairly frequently of late, which is about how, to, how we describe ourselves, uh, whether we're paranormal investigators, ghost hunters, psychical investigators, or whatever. Do you have any preferred term? No, I, I really, uh, well, I, I suppose to say preferred, no, but there's some I, I, I would have a greater dislike for. Paranormal investigator tends to be the one that gets put out there because that's the current trendy word, I guess, if that's fair enough to say. And we, and we buy into that because people have an, uh, an understanding of that based on the present uh, dynamic that's out there, whether that be instilled in people or ingrained in people because of TV shows, etc. But, you know, so look at, I mean, paranormal investigators are essentially what we call ourselves. Although most of what we investigate often ends up not being paranormal. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. What about you, Ron? What do you, what do you like to refer to yourself as? Ghostbuster. A, ghost, a ghostbuster? Hmm. Okay. There you go. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's come up fairly. It, well, it's come up fairly theme, often. I have a theme song that way. You know what I mean? Uh, and 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 the overalls. We we it's come up fairly often of late that um, a description of you know how how do we introduce what we do? I don't like the term paranormal investigator because I think Why it's not? actually t- because I think it's too broad a term. Um, you know, paranormal investigators. Well, isn't that they, what we do? Broad. I mean, I'm very broad as far as what I do. I'll investigate any, anything as strange and unusual. Well. In my, in, for, for me, I don't. I, I'm very restricted in what I actually look oh, at okay. in my, in my area of, of uh, expertise. So I, I don't like the term paranormal investigator, although I do periodically use it. Oh, there's a deer in the middle of the road. Pardon? There's a deer in the middle of the road. Is that a key for an investigation? I don't know. It's paranormal, maybe. I don't know. Well, we I've, have got to invest- I've got to investigate it. <laughs> how, how often does that happen? There was a deer sitting in the freaking middle of the road on a busy I, highway. With, All right. I've no, I've no idea how often that happens. All right, there you go. Uh, carry on. <laughs> okay. Well, that sort of derailed that 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 conversation, actually. Well, yeah, you know, but I think we're talking about labels, and and you know, a horse by any other name is still a horse. <laughs> yeah, but I I actually think labels are, are fairly okay. important to describe to define what we do because uh, ASAP. Uh, in the UK, we have the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of years ago, set themselves up as the official professional body for paranormal investigation. Um, and they lumped into that UFO investigators and ghost investigators and investigators of cryptozoology and uh, all manner of other 14 uh, mm-hmm. phenomena. Now, you do have ufologists and cryptozoologists and 40, 40 armor specialists. There isn't actually one for ghost investigators except possibly ghost hunter, but that, you know, that sort of gives people the idea that, well, that, that a ghost is something that can be hunted like a, like a, like a creature. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's uh, and the other one, the old fashioned term, psychical researcher or psychical oh. investigator. Ooh. As, as Anne 
Anne and I both use that one from time to time, but you end up mm. having to explain to people that you're not psychic. Um, yeah. And it sounds you're like not... you're studying mediums and psychics. It doesn't sound like you're, like you're studying. Exact, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I like that. We're, we're, we're trying to promote a new term um, and we're trying to define a new term for what we do as ghost investigators. We should plan a conference around that. Yeah, call it Manisology 101. Oh, no, <laughs> don't start with that again. Well, it's, only, it's only posh Latin for ghostology. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> hey, it's, catch, it's catching on. It's catching Let's on. talk about Michael. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, has, uh, you have 12 stories in your book. Uh, uh, I mean, which one do you think is the strongest one? I mean, it's really intriguing that the, the reader is going to go away really scratching their head. Okay, I think for me, it's probably chapter five. Now, it's, it's, it's called Neighboring Ghosts. It's, it's about uh, a private case that we undertook in, in the Wexford area, whereby it was all manner of things occurring we had equipment appearing and disappearing on us we had uh, architrave and, and i like what steve mentioned actually earlier about a, a pre-setup setup because had we have had that this night we might have captured this so it's only anecdotal but we had a piece of architrave thrown at us up a hallway while we were setting up cameras we had a dvr monitor switch itself on with no power cable in it um which to me that defies any reason and logic you know you disconnect the power cable from a transformer and the energy dissipates or the the, the power dissipates over a matter of seconds not 10 or 15 minutes later when it's not been plugged in so there was a a general sense of uh, a negative or, or to use that word malevolent disposition throughout the night and some of what we captured would seem to substantiate that and in fact there were things that occurred that I don't include in the book for that very reason it's the one and only time when I thought at four in the morning it might be prudent to get the team out of the location we didn't we stuck it out but, um, yeah, that was interesting. Now, I will say it's very much the exception to the norm. It's the one and only time, really, in all the cases, places I've been in, where, where we have encountered that level of overt negativity. Hmm. Do you think that's actually generated from the location or from uh, the human perspective of the location? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, we wouldn't have had any predispositions or assumptions of negativity going in. Um, and the house itself was only built around about 1980. So the building, the structure that we see when we're there isn't particularly old. So it does bring up the question, it, you know, is it something that relates to the environment beyond that which we see in terms of the current building? I will say the house was unoccupied and had been for some time because the family had moved out. Uh, they had attempted on a number of occasions to rent it out, but those who rented it wouldn't remain there. So when we went in, the, even the electricity had been off for some time, and we had to run generators at a distance up the driveway to power our equipment that night. Hmm. You see, I, 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 I asked the question as well because um, often, the, particularly with my infrasound research, um, feelings of negativity within individuals can be engendered from the environment around them. Uh, that can be yes. something like infrasound. Yeah, um, but also as we did uh, once in North Wales on a, on a, a, a location, we we kind of created a haunted corridor um, within people. Simply, it it didn't look very pleasant, um, and there was a corridor that looked pleasant, and mm -hmm. we we created a sort of scenario whereby the the pleasant looking corridor was the haunted corridor, uh, and the unpleasant one was the was the non haunted corridor. Right. Um, and it was interesting because we were we were seeing if the environment you know would give them any any uh, any cues, um, 
but surprisingly, people felt uncomfortable in the comfortable corridor, and they felt you know uneasy. They didn't like being there, and yet they could sit in the derelict corridor with the the fungus on the walls. Mm. Um, with ease, because they didn't have a story attached to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I am aware that that people, you know, it can be sort of in, uh, contagious if somebody isn't feeling right, that they're not feeling comfortable, and it does kind of spread through the group. Yeah, no, that wouldn't have been the case in, in, in this particular instance, because... Mm-hmm. No one from the outset would have felt that way, and it wasn't a trickle effect where one person got it and it filtered into the next because all of these things literally it was like lifting a lid on a box and they all sprung out at the same time. But yeah, certainly infrasound, we, we've conducted a few small experiments ourselves on that to see how it affects people physiologically. We, we ran a, an experiment where we pumped infrasound into a location and I put people in for 30 minutes at a time and not telling them whether it was or wasn't on at that time to, to uh, observe their, their changes in, in mood or disposition over that 30 minute uh, period. So, I mean, that, yes, it's interesting. Yes, we project uh, stories and narratives outward and then experience them back and it's all of our own doing. I, I certainly would subscribe to that idea as well. But... Um, yeah, I don't think that's the case, Steve. Certainly no, in relation no. to this, I, I uh, can I, I can relate to what you're saying because uh, you know I've we've been to locations that um, I, I think back to the shipyard and we'd been there for three years um, on a not quite but very close to almost weekly basis and it was a, a building that I was very familiar with, very comfortable with, and yet mm-hmm. on one two occasions. Uh, while servicing the equipment, which meant I had to go into a part of the building unaccompanied to change change over batteries, tape, cables. Um, there was a feeling of unease, um, bordering on the fact that get the job done, get back out again, rather than, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a fear in that, you know, run in, run out, and I don't like being here, but there was a definite feeling of being Ill, Ill at ease and a, and a feeling of wanting to get the job done and not linger. So I, you know, and it was a building that I was entirely comfortable with. So I have always wondered about that. Yeah, sorry, Ron, go ahead. No, no, go ahead and finish. No, I was going to say that I suppose for me as well to to defend that perspective that I don't believe it was somewhat psychosomatic on our part or, or infectious as a disposition is that in all the places we have been, that's never manifested other than here when we've been in those locations that would give you that impression when this was your average 1980s semi uh, detached building on its own site pleasant to look at um all of those things that that you know i think would would defend the perspective that weren't we wouldn't have been predisposed to it you know and you know Enniscardi castle for example which is where you're coming to on on friday mm-hmm. night it's been there's been a castle there since 1190 uh, it's seen a lot of turbulent history throughout our the the social history of Ireland, we'd be familiar with and aware of all that history and context. And yet, Enniscardi Castle wraps its arms around you. It welcomes you in, despite that history that's there, you know. You know, what's interesting is that I spoke with uh, Stephen Scott, who's coming over here with uh, Steve, the same time Steve's coming over in uh, the fall, and he is a Scottish spiritualist medium. And he told me that he doesn't believe that places are haunted by spirits. Uh, he, be- you know, he he believes in spirit because he speaks to spirit. But he says when he goes into a haunted location, it's more of uh, energy that's in there rather than any type of like person or anything. So it has that negative energy sometimes where you feel 
like Steve did and wanted to leave. And, uh, you know, what that is is another story. He couldn't exactly tell me what that is other than maybe it was just impressions or anything. But uh, it's interesting because what we do, that's what we try to find out is, is what is that we're actually dealing with? We, we don't know at times. That's right. And I suppose that the... The fun to be had from that is, you know, finding an answer only has a value. I think we might have discussed this the last time, if it leads to the next pertinent question. Mm -hmm. And on and on we go from there. So, Absolutely. Uh, it, to me, it's about gathering evidence, and therefore we're not getting hung up on the burden of proof. But if we gather over time a collection of evidence that begins to substantiate a perspective, it, it, it'll lead to the discovery of a, of, of a truth of some sort. Um, I know, Steve, you've seen the, the contents of the book, so you'd be aware that's one of the things I mentioned in the introduction. Mm. Absolutely. I, 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 just coming back again to this idea of um, what, what Ron brought up, this, uh, this idea of uh, you don't get a spirit haunting a place, it's an energy. I mean, uh, that does kind of fly in the face of um, the research. It flies mm. in the face of, of what we define as a haunting. And and literally thousands of accounts where people have seen the same entity, the same apparition at the location over yep. a period of years and without any prior knowledge of other sightings. Now, that does suggest that it's, it's, non, it's not an energy, that it's actually, uh, you know, something else. Uh, I, I, you know, he's trying to find the right words. Uh, but I... I I think on that point, I would disagree with Stephen. Certainly, buildings have an energy that people pick up on, mm -hmm. um, and that that I've heard many times from mediums and from psychics. But I think that's actually a separate thing from well, a haunting. Isn't and, that just a takeoff and a residual haunting? I mean, where you well, you get not necessarily because not necessarily because you can actually have, and there are cases that I'm aware of where you can have both. Uh, where you can have a haunting and an energy, um, you know, layering upon each other. Um, he's, not, so, he's not denying that. No. So one isn't one one isn't contradictory to the other. But to simply say that they're all in that in that sort of category. Well, maybe I is, didn't that, explain it properly. And, right. And right. Maybe he yeah. was talking about many layers of, of energy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which could be everything from the residual haunting to just the feeling to whatever. I mean, you know, I, I don't have him here, so I can't ask him more, but uh, I think that's what he's, he's talking about, which is it's nothing that's really alive or interactive. It's more just an energy. But we have... And even, even when it is interactive, it's more created by the people that are witnessing it rather than the building or anything else. Well, we do have accounts, and in fact, Stephen, um, Michael gave us one right at the start of the show tonight where there is an apparent interactivity. His name was called, and there are many instances on record where uh, somebody has yeah, apparent... Yeah, we might actually, as the witnesses, might be actually creating that subconsciously in well, our own minds. Well, well that, would, that, would, that would hold the case if there was only a single witness, but there have been multiple witness sightings where the apparition has interacted with a group of people mm. or is interacting with one person and has been witnessed by others. Right. So that would either suggest a mass hallucination. Mass hallucination or a group energy, yes. But, but there you have another, you know, you've got the, the confusing paradox that, that parapsychology throws in, that uh, uh, this idea that we can, we can sort of transpose our, our hallucinations to others. So they're, they're really saying, well, it's not paranormal, it's paranormal. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how I mean, many look- times? I mean, you see, you see, parapsychologists. They say, well, it's not, it's not a haunting. It's telepathy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it is explaining the paranormal in terms of something undefined and unnatural, supernatural, um, metaphysical. Um, but, but it has more credibility with the parapsychologists. So let's take a look at the word paranormal. What, is, what does it really mean to you, Steve, and to you, Michael? What, I'll start with Michael. What does paranormal mean to you? Well, to me, it's, it's something that, that would seem to exist outside in the realms of convention, but convention, as we understand it, I mean, if, if something is... I, I'm going to bring this up and, and probably be shot for doing so. Let's take the example of <laughs> orbs, right? I heard if about they're, it. Yeah, if they're replicated time and time again, and if they're captured in millions and millions of photos all over the world, then they're not paranormal. They're normal because they're normal by virtue of the fast, fact that they're existent everywhere at all times. You know, we mightn't have a. Well, let's see. I was going to say we mightn't have an understanding for them, but as far as I'm concerned, I have my understanding of them. Um, um, you know, so it, it's just if, if, if they're out there and they're that prevalent. You know, it, it, it isn't paranormal, it's normal, but it's just something we don't necessarily understand at this point, you know. So is the paranormal something we don't understand until we do? No, I think it's just a, univer- a universal catch-all term that's become popular. I mean, mm. if we go right the way back to the early part of the 20th century, there was there was quite a debate about what you call what we you know what we're studying uh supernatural metaphysical supernormal uh all were terms that were that were used uh charles richet said that they were all inadmissible uh because they were just plain wrong they didn't encompass what people were looking at and he proposed to use the term metaphysics which he suggested um that were marked off from the physical and that they seem to be due to an unknown intelligence or an unknown force, be it human or non-human. Now, that you know, we use the term paranormal. He proposed the term metaphysical. Paranormal, for me, is just a common parlance term. It's one that I accept is wrong, like I talk about EMF meters, but I know that mm. EMF is not an electromagnetic field. It's an electromotive force. But we have to, as I said before with Michael's book, we have to talk about in a language that people can understand. And we have a, it's like the word ghost as well. Um, we, we have a basic understanding of what all these terms mean. And, mean. and so it's an acceptable term. It's mm. not necessarily correct, but it's acceptable. Yeah, I mean, we're getting into the discussion of the idea of absolutes versus currently held beliefs. So it was normal to consider the world flat until it wasn't. You know, so I think I think it's a little bit of that type of thing to to use a simplistic example. You know, but yeah. going back to what you were talking about with regard to multiple and numerous observations of the same types of sightings and phenomena, I mean that applies. That that was why we were contacted initially by Anastardi Castle because daytime guests were coming back to reception and saying, "Who's that person on the top of the stairs?" And in numerous accounts of the same thing being seen in the same place by different people who were not aware of the other reported stories uh, were beginning to present themselves. Now, you could begin to question, if it's the same place, are there environmental factors that are bringing about the appearance of something uh, human-like or figure-like or whatever? But that was part of why we got involved and uh, began to explore it. And, you know, over time, it's unfolded significantly in terms of the experiences we've had there. 
you know, and not on yours. Into a, sorry, you've, sorry. Just, you've just walked into a minefield question there, Michael. And okay. I, 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 <laughs> well, I'm sitting down if that helps. <laughs> well, you said um, the daytime guests to Enniscorthy Castle reported. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why do you investigate at night? Oh, look at that. That's again. <laughs> That, and that's a question we get asked several times. And, and do you know what? I'm glad people ask that question. You don't have to is the answer. There's no necessity other than the only thing. But you the can. Only sing, yeah, but you can. Um, but it feeds into the, 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 the currently held perspective of, you know, it, it's dark and it's scary. And that, that's what this field <laughs> is all about. But, but the only thing, the only advantage, single advantage it offers me is that the world is quieter at night, so I'm dealing with less extraneous noise. But that, to me, would be beyond that. There's no other necessity or advantage in it. Do you investigate by day? Yeah, yeah. In fact, one of the accounts in the book, getting back to the book, plug plug, uh, is a chapter about um, a location I visited early evening on a, on a summer's evening in August, and uh, the occurrences that were observed at that time. So yeah, it can be done during the day. Of course, it can. Why not? When you're when you're actually doing an investigation, um, do you do you when you start with the witness accounts, you're called in, or your your uh, your research shows that a particular mm-hmm. time of day or a particular set of circumstances were in in force when. Uh, Somebody had an experience. Yeah, is is that the base the base point of your that your investigation that you that you sort of start from eight o'clock when the person saw it watching Coronation Street or mm-hmm. watching Downton Abbey, and work out from that, or do yeah. you or do you go when you can get there? Yeah, I think you know we go when we can get there. Ideally, if we can replicate as closely as possible the circumstances and the environment as the person recalls it. Um, to, you know that, that's just good practice, I think, because you know science is about seeking to replicate phenomena to demonstrate how it's created and how it's formed, or whatever the case might be. But yeah, it's when we can really. If, but we would try to look at dates, uh, environmental conditions, factors, whatever it might be. But the the important thing as well is that if we visit somebody who's had significant personal experiences and we find on the time or times we go that there's nothing, it's flat. All I can say to people is that nothing happened on that day. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it, we need to be mindful not to strip away completely from the person their right to think the thoughts they have about the place they're in. No, exactly. And, of course, you're changing the circumstances because you're, you're there. Oh, yeah. Um, and you weren't, you weren't there when they had that experience. Um, so you've, you've already changed the, the, the environment. You've already changed mm-hmm. the situation. Yeah, yeah that's true. Anyways, I know we're running out of time. By the way, electromagnetic fields, or EMF, is is an acceptable term. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I no, am in, holding, in, no, in I, physics. I am holding three. In, well, in, 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 regards in, to, in regards to electrical power, it is referred as electromagnetic field. EMF, as an, as an, an abbreviation, is the uh, universally accepted abbreviation for an electromotive force. Power frequency fields or electromagnetic fields are often referred to an electrical power or ELF as well. Anyway. We're talking about, yeah, we're not talking. You're from. Oh, was that EMF again? Yeah, yeah. Two, M, my, two minutes, Michael. I, okay. I got to ask you this. I, I got this this book I just got today from the library, and, and I had never seen this before. And it's kind of new. Do you know anything about the Chinese seals of Ireland? No. 
Um, so by by all means, please enlighten me. <laughs> about, what about you, Stephen? Uh, no, I'm struggling whether you're talking about things that you impress into wax or things that jump out of the sea with balls on the nose. <laughs> In the 1840s, a man by the name of Edmund Getty from Belfast decided to find some of the answers because they were finding these little Chinese, uh, they're a cube, about one and an eighth inch long with a, a seal on it. And they were found all over the island throughout the country in like lakes and things. And you never knew about this. All right, we're going to have to look into this, but we ran out of time. That's so, a whole new show. The Chinese yeah. Seals of Ireland. I don't know. I, I got this book by uh, somebody you guys might know, Arthur C. Clarke. Everybody, anybody heard of him? Oh, I know Arthur. I know of Arthur C. Clarke. Or yeah, grew and, up with his television programs and books. Well, and he talks about these seals. I'm curious, and I, I had Michael on the show. I wanted to ask him about them. So, anyways, we are just about out of time. Uh, Michael, you want to tell us a little bit about this uh, event you're doing this? Uh, Weekend? Yes, indeed. On Friday night, we have the official launch of Haunted Wexford. It's taking place in Enniscardi Castle, an 800-plus-year-old castle, so that's what better location to have it. And I am um, so pleased and proud to say that launching it officially for me on the night will be the eminent Mr. Steve Parsons himself. <laughs> well, thank you for the flowers. How did he buy your book, Michael? Oh, the book is available through Amazon, through the Book Depository, um, all good online bookstores and in all major bookstores, certainly in Ireland. And I know there are copies uh, in circulation around the UK and the USA as well. So by all means, seek them out. They are there to be had and enjoy the read. And if you're in Wexford or Enniscorthy on Friday night, you can get a signed copy. You there can you go. indeed. And, and, and Ron, sure you... one, I will. One will be making its way to you. Oh, excellent. So anyways, that's the uh, beats. Of, In my hand uh, luggage. Yeah, yeah. Well. So anyways, uh, Michael Benson, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Quick, your website. One thing we forgot yes. to give out. www.wexfordparanormal.com. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank All you, right, Michael. See you. you Friday. Good night. Cheers. God bless. See you, Steve. Good night. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us 